to the Construction Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here's your Joining host. me for today's podcast is our special guests, Steve Webb, Director and Co-Founder of Webb Yates, and Tom Webster, the Director of Webb Yates. Welcome to the podcast, Steve and Tom. Can you give our listeners a little introduction to yourselves? Uh, Steve? Tom, do you want to go first? Or should I? Um, uh, yeah, so I'm Steve Webb. Um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, structural engineer. We founded, me and Andy Yates founded Web Yates 15 years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, very happy to be here. Thank you for having us on. And Tom? Uh, I'm Tom, Tom Webster. Uh, I've been with Web Yates now since 2015. Previously, that was at ACOM, um, came director in 2016. Um, and it's been onwards and upwards ever since then for the company, I think. Awesome. Well, really excited to have you on. Now, as it's the Construction Big Breakfast, we do have to ask one very important question before we dive into the real the nitty gritty of it. Uh, what did you have for breakfast today, Tom? Um, I had uh, almonds, some sunflower seeds and some pumpkin seeds, a dollop of yogurt, a whole load of blueberries, and then I hoovered up my daughter's breakfast after her, which is toast. <laughs> that's, so that's, that's what I've had. Um, how about yourself steve my daughter who uh his diet is uh getting worse and worse has a big packet of crave have you ever had crave it's the perfect combination of salt sugar and fat (laughs) (laughs) they're like like little tortellinis of uh corn flour with chocolate on the inside and um Really bad. Something really good addictive. way to boost your blood they even sugar call level. Them crave. Just like... They're probably called crave because you're becoming addicted oh, I to, to it. I have to. I have to confess to that to counterpoint Tom's super healthy. But maybe <laughs> he was stealing crave from his daughter afterwards as well. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> he was stealing crave. It sounds like it should be illegal. It's, yeah. uh... It is. Oh my god! It totally should be illegal. It should be. They should be taxing. Uh, taxing that stuff. You know. That's, uh... <laughs> Um, cause of diabetes in the world. Uh, Daryl, how about for yourself? What did you have for breakfast? Well, compared to these two, I had something relatively boring. So I just had granola this morning and, uh, and as usual, a nice cup of coffee. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, for myself, I actually did a juice cleanse last week, which I hated every minute of it. I don't think our bodies are meant to only drink juice. Um, so I've obviously been eating copious amounts of food since then. So I've made some uh, low-fat muffins. I think they're called that just because I didn't use proper sugar, but probably still pretty bad for you. But I put figs and coconut and banana uh, and rolled oats in them. And so I had two of those with some butter and coffee and they were really tasty. Um, All right. So let's dive into the thick of it. Sustainability. Webb Yates is a leader in sustainability in the industry. We are excited to hear you talk about some topics and uh, uh, projects that you've been doing. So yeah, I, I know particularly having, having worked with you guys for uh, a couple of years now, the, the kind of projects that you guys get get stuck into. And I know that in particular on, on timber and stone, you seem to be leading the way in terms of what the industry is doing and, and where it's going. So what what kind of drives you to work on on those kind of solutions? Well, I think we, um, well, when I was at I mean, I'm, you know, old. So in like 1987, they started talking about global warming widely, although obviously people have known about global warming for maybe 120 years or something. And when I was at college, people were talking about sustainability and they were talking about timber being a sustainable resource. Um, 
and we didn't learn anything about timber at university but it just occurred to me at that point that quite nice to make buildings out of timber it's a natural material um i think um uh so we've always been i mean all the way through my career i've been pushing for to get timber into jobs just because i think it's interesting it's a little more steel is quite you know for for big complex bridges and stuff steel is you know as difficult as anything else but for smaller projects steel is a very uh very easy answer uh and timber's a bit more challenging uh a bit more difficult and um so uh but yeah we've been promoting that for a long time and and pretty much all the way through um our company's um existence and um uh yeah it makes a huge difference to the carbon footprint of what we do and yeah um, it's, a, it's a cultural thing that we we steve and andy when they started the company we've always driven quite strong social values through the business and um, you know our, our staff believe really passionately in in trying to do our bit to reduce our carbon footprint um and unfortunately for us as predominantly civil and structural engineers uh, you know whilst we also have an MEP department as well for the civil and structural engineer being sustainable is a moral choice it's not a legislative choice and it's not a it's not a choice that's required by BRIAM because you know you can design the most sustainable structure in the world and you'll get one BRIAM credit for it out of 200 it's not worth it and so you know I think our approach to it is that we we choose as a company to to drive a sustainable model as far as we can within the, the limits of our clients' budgets and, 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 and the limits of the sort of building practice and building codes that we work to. Uh, and we try and push that throughout throughout the business. And it's a, it's a really core part of who we are. And we're trying to avoid moving away from that just because people throw obstacles in our way, left, right and centre on, you know, fire protection and tall building analysis and, you know, risk and availability of materials and, and all these kind of issues. Ultimately, in 50 years time we have to have significantly improved the common common footprint of the world really in terms of you know trying to make a change just trying to explore that in a little bit more detail how do you kind of balance up you get a requirement from a client that say i want i want a brand new building and uh, and obviously that comes with a carbon footprint in and of itself how do you balance that up with your ethos then of of driving for sustainability trying to improve the lives of of people around you how do you kind of weigh up those two considerations i think our um i mean our start we have a, a planeteers group um it's a like a group of um staff members that get together and, and talk about sustainability and they had a really interesting debate recently and one of the questions that came up in the debate was should we be working for people who are doing non-sustainable construction and we were kind of talking it through so if somebody comes along and says oh, i want a massive concrete frame you know would we do it and um I mean, my, you know, we debated it and I don't know, I can't remember what the final conclusion was, but my view on that is like, you, you know, they're going to build that whether or not we do it. Uh, and actually, um, and this is a terrible parallel, but rather like Tony Blair and the Iraq war, it's better to be inside the room uh, mitigating <laughs> to have absolutely no influence whatsoever. So we, I think, um, uh, we try and agitate on all of our projects to go down a more sustainable route. So we'll offer people um, a reuse alternative or a timber alternative. Uh, if they're not buying that, then we'll probably go down a GGBS route. We'll try and design more economically and not be really heavy handed um, and try and convince those clients that it's important. 
Um, but you really have to tread a fine line because you know most most corporate clients, particularly the ones that aren't particularly particularly environmentally friendly, don't want sustainability shoved down their throat at every meeting. So you can pretty quickly alienate them. So it's kind of quite um, a balancing act. But we've um, you know, we've had some successes, and there are places where we haven't had successes. And and you know we build a lot of concrete and steel buildings. So um, so it's not all um, it's not all wood and stone. Um, so, so you're engineers and diplomats at the same time. <laughs> well, you know, I think actually, as a, I mean, as an engineer, if you, I mean, I think engineers, you know, we like to design and we, you know, and, you know, many people in our office are very creative, clever people and they have really good ideas, but you don't have uh, explicitly very much agency on a design team. You're there to do the numbers, to stop the building from falling down. Um, uh, and so you have to, if you want to get a interesting you know an in, intrinsically interesting structural solution into a project or a more sustainable solution you have to be diplomatic and persuasive so for example everyone in our office goes to sketching boot camp you know because if you do a nice sketch of a concept it's far like far more likely to fly through the architect through the client than if you um uh, you know than if you have if you don't have those those kind of skills of persuasion do you find as time goes on, people are becoming more open to what your suggestions about more sustainable measures instead of concrete, or are people pretty concrete in there? I think, I think there's two things that's happening. Um, one is there is far more education around climate and what it means and what the the effects are. And and as you know, as the climate continues to change, it's becoming more apparent that these effects are there. And so there is more education around our clients. I think um, one thing I've seen, and I guess this is going to answer your point, Sarah, and, and part of Daryl's point, is actually the people who hire us often don't have a sustainability agenda. Developers um, don't often want it, don't often need it. But actually what I'm finding is, is that the funders do have a sustainability agenda. And so actually, whilst you've got consultants pushing up from the bottom to try and change the way we design, you've also got the funders who are getting a lot of money from young professionals who want to put their money into green investment funds and therefore the client, our clients who are in the middle between the funders and, and the engineering teams are, are getting squeezed about you know what are you doing about reducing your embodied carbon on a building so often in terms of that being persuasive we often say to our clients well look you know here is an alternative design which is the lowest carbon we think you could you can get and here's a comparison between this and maybe what what you what you're asking for, but also go and talk to your funders because the biggest problem we have is that we get ignored or or, or some bits get adopted, and then you get to stage four and they want to just secure their funding so they can get the contractor on board and go to site, and then all of a sudden we start getting asked questions about oh how could we reduce the carbon of this building now? And you're like well it's too late, you know we can do X Y Z, or we go into a full redesign. You're too late. We said at the beginning, go and talk to your funders and see what what their expectations were going to be. And I think um, I think there's this this push down from the financing teams and there's a push up from the the consultants and there is change happening, but it's it's a it's slow. It, it's quite slow and, and quite painful at times. I think. Do, do you think the bottom line cost is going to become less and less of an issue then, when you're looking at the the early you know, development of these I, schemes? I, Unless there is a fundamental change in the economics of construction, no, because it's, you know, there's always, it's always about, you know, trying to get your net lettable as high as possible 
all your areas as high as possible, build as cheaply as you can to maximise your profits. So until there's a fundamental shift in in the way that people generate income or see value in their properties, no, I think you, you will always end up with, uh, unless somebody has a particular social agenda or sustainability agenda and that's what funds their company, then no, I don't think so. And um, you have to rewrite it from bottom up, I think, to really to really change things from away from the lowest cost. Or we drive sustainable solutions to a point where they are the lowest cost and they're the only ones that make sense. Um, do you agree, Steve, or do you think there's there's other things? I think that there's. A, I mean, I think there's. It's quite the focus on sustainability has been until very recently um, uh, about energy and use, about building systems and stuff. So uh, air conditioning and heating and um, and the cost of energy cost of running the building over the long term when buildings were badly insulated single glazed, um, badly serviced, uh, heavily air conditioned um, things, then the actual the in-use energy cost was massive compared to the, um, the embodied carbon. Um, but those things have changed now and actually, you know, energy and use has reduced quite a lot. If we specify a steel frame today, that carbon is going out in the atmosphere tomorrow. Uh, if we have a really economic um, building services system with very low cost, you know, low energy cost air conditioning, that's working across a 40 year period. And in the latter part of that 40 year period in a decarbonized, heavily decarbonized grid. So it's using a lot of solar power and, and wind energy at that point in time. Um, but actually all the legislation and all the financial incentives are for energy and use. Um, and there are particular building control targets for those um, for those things. Um, and uh, there are no targets and no benefits in in doing something about the embodied carbon. So I I think the embodied carbon at this point is far more important than the energy in use for those reasons. And actually, there's no legislation to back that up. So a client sees he has to do something about the energy in use, but the but the um, um, the uh, embodied carbon, which I think is much more important, is um, is has no no advantage to him. But but um, but the um, I mean, the other um, the other thing is that all the carbon is in the frame and the foundations, and the frame and the foundations is probably fifteen percent of the building cost. Okay. So it's not a massive, and that's the build cost, not the development cost. So maybe the build cost is, I don't know, sixty percent of the development cost or something. So it's kind of fifteen percent of sixty percent, and uh, so changes to a frame to make it a timber frame or or you know reduce the foundations or something are pretty marginal in the big picture. You only look at an impact of 10% of the overall cost of a building, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, it's not even, well, yeah, I mean, I think maybe 10, yeah, so 10% is the frame. If the frame costs 20% more because it's a timber frame rather than a steel frame, then it makes a 2% difference. 2% difference overall. So, like, so who would um, screw up the planet for 2%? I think, I think the other thing they need to look at is the carbon impact. The carbon cost is not necessarily here. So if you let's say let's say you went down a route of taxing embodied carbon, where do you tax it? So you know a lot of steel is produced in Far East or in Europe. So do you tax it at source where it, where the carbon is deposited, um, or do you tax it at point of use? So do you then tax it in all the developments in London? Um, and I think you know if you want to drive change from clients, you have to tax it in um, tax it at point of use. Um, potentially, and you would see a huge change in behaviour because it would start affecting people's profitabilities. Um, 
and maybe that is one way to, to really drive that change quite quickly. I mean, another tax we were uh, writing an article in the um, uh, in the architectural review the other day about about taxation and specifically that we pay, you know, we tax labor. We don't really tax material. So we pay income tax. So we as designers, just as or builders or whoever, you know, um, uh, we are our, our cost is increased by taxation, whereas material isn't. So there's a kind of um, tax distortion effect where we will charge less fee and do less design work and put in a slightly fatter, simpler concrete flat slab because it's in the round, it's more economical to spend money on more material than it is on labor. So particularly in, a, in an economy that has a high labor cost and a high taxation cost, if you move that tax from human, human labor to, to material, then we would be incentivized to spend a lot more time honing designs. Uh, contractors would would put more intricate, lighter weight structures. And um, so the fiscal system doesn't really support sustainability very well for the reasons that Tom outlined and, and, and that reason. So. I'm sensing for, from what you're saying that there needs to be a combination of um, exactly as you described it, Tom, the, the change in behavior and interests of investors but also some legislative changes in order to support that movement in order to get to a place where ultimately we can we can produce the most sustainable solutions that we can. But I don't know. I mean, like we've we've had, you know, the, the part L building control thing for the carbon thing happened, uh, I don't know, eight or nine years ago, whatever. Um, other than that, I don't, you know, the government's going on about sustainability from dawn till dusk, you know, but I haven't seen any kind of legislation that supports the kinds of things that we and many other practices are doing to try to be more sustainable and in fact local councils and local governments refuse to accept timber buildings and actually insist on concrete buildings so not only do you have a, a total absence of government and the uk is famously liaison-faire in terms of you know in, in terms of the government interfering in markets you know leave it to the market we'll be building in steel and concrete forever you know if it wasn't for the kind of morality of of individual practices and 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 people, you know, nobody would do anything. And I think the government needs to, you know, stop talking about all the targets and actually step up and and, and actually do something to make it a bit easier for us to push. You know, all the solutions are there. You know, I don't, you know, no, they will build. I think they'll build a nuclear power station before they'll build subsidise a timber plant in the UK. So we you have a shortage of CLT and rising timber prices. You know, they would rather build a nuclear power station to decarbonise the energy, which is hugely dangerous and impractical, rather than build a timber plant to reduce the cost of sustainable materials in construction. What would you rather have, a nuclear power station or a timber plant? Yeah, well, I know which I'd prefer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but maybe uh, maybe a timber plant is bad economics. Maybe nuclear power is good for the Jews. <laughs> I think, you know, it's about everything around, isn't it? You know, there's there's the economics of the materials, the labour, as Steve's quite rightly pointed out. There's, you know, the the the, the taxation on, on on carbon, but also design codes and approved documents of practice are often adjusted in a knee-jerk way to deal with current political problems rather than being released as a considered set of building documents. If you go and talk to some of the engineers in, in Europe, they laugh at the UK market and how much steel and concrete we use. You know, they, they, they're all talking about doing 
timber sky rise buildings as the norm you know in the next 10 to 15 years and we are i think as a as an outset towards design and materiality of our buildings we're we're so far behind europe on that in terms of our approach to being pragmatic and 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 uh and innovative with those materials and really understanding them um the french government recently said 50 percent of government buildings in france should be timber mandated as an example of what tom's saying and and i think you know we we as a practice has has you know could uh, well, I feel like we're in danger of, you know, of kind of being, you know, you know, being maybe being seen as, as kind of this kind of practice that won't won't d- design a building that works unless it's timber. And that's not the case. But I think the, you know, if we took one of our buildings like Anna Freud uh, Centre, Cantor Centre of Excellence, it's a beautiful bit of design. And the reason that is, is because it's taking materials and using them where they're best. You know, so we've created this timber concrete composite. The st- concrete slabs between floors and 90 mil thick they're sized for their you know their fire properties so they're doing what they need to do and what concrete's good at you know they're giving that thermal mass to the MEP so that they can have an openable window solution you know but we're only putting 90 mil of concrete in on every floor not not 250 mil and then we're using the timber where it's really good in terms of its strength and it's you know and it's natural beauty so you expose the timber so there's no plasterboard you expose the underside of the concrete so there's no plasterboard you have the timbers spanning something like seven and a half meters at sort of 600 centers and all of a sudden you're you're getting a timber building you're significantly reducing the carbon footprint of that building and where you need to put the material such as concrete because we're not saying you're not going to ever use concrete we're making sure that that concrete is as thin as it absolutely needs to be to do the job it needs to do and you know that's it's a job that's been a bit of a labor of love for for steve and others within within the practice but it absolutely highlights that it's it's about putting the right material in the right place, not necessarily a full timber building or a full concrete building or a steel and concrete building. And I think that's it's really important to kind of rethink the way we put buildings together. And, and it's about just enough in just the right place and not, not necessarily completely banning concrete, not completely banning steel, but it's just about doing the right things at the right time finding that kind of sweet spot and balance. Um, on that point, do you see any changes coming with COVID and the future of how construction's working? Any, any innovation that maybe clients have asked um, you to work on or thoughts that you guys have had in concepts um, towards you know, making safer workplaces um, or how the future of that looks? I, did, I remember when, when COVID first started, sort of April last year, there was a lot of meetings on a lot of the buildings we were designing about, you know, how do we make this building COVID safe in three to five years time, you know, whenever that building might be built. And I think by the time people had done the lift analysis and realised that by the time you'd finished making the building COVID safe, you wouldn't have any floor area left. It kind of got parked, you know, and from, you know, there's lots of little bits and pieces about surfaces and sanitisation and, 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 and a lot on the MEP about, you know, do you centralise plant equipment so that you're not so recirculating air and you know various other things that go with this in terms of the structural side of things i've not seen very much in there that's that's changing for for the structural engineer but definitely for the mep side of the business there's lots of talking about you know how do you how do you deal with recirculating existing air and, and how do you change to a more centralized system mm-hmm. um but i i suspect you know a year on 
I'm not necessarily on a lot of the commercial projects that I do. I'm not having conversations about how we make buildings COVID safe anymore. I think people have kind of accepted that maybe you can't. You can make yeah. them better and you just have to manage the occupancy and you have to manage the airflows. Um, but ultimately, maybe we're better off not building COVID safe buildings. Maybe we're better off improving digital infrastructure, you know, not cramming, not building de housing developments where everybody sat on top of each other because there's a lot of developments where COVID ripped through housing blocks, really caused, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of sadness for a lot of people. You know, why don't we build houses with a bit more space around them so people can work from home from, from effective home office spaces? You know, it's that kind of, you know, are you better off doing that than, than trying to upgrade every office to, to, to deal with a pandemic? Yeah, and that's an interesting conversation as well, too, because COVID is here to stay. It seems like it's something we're going to be living with forever. So changing the entire structure of how we build buildings to work around something that we're probably going to live with forever doesn't necessarily seem sustainable in the future. No, and there'll be another pandemic at some point yeah. with, with a different virus or a different thing. And the building that you made COVID safe isn't, you know, isn't Joe Blog virus safe in the future. So, you know, how do you predict that? It's a very difficult, difficult thing to do. That's a cheerful thought. <laughs> pandemic too. Absolutely. Very optimistic. <laughs> but just on that, have you seen any, any, change in demand going forward in terms of the the requirement for commercial office buildings maybe maybe it's a little bit too early yet because because things were kind of already in the pipeline but have you seen any impact there in terms of the the way in which people are going to work we've seen I mean, so i can't say if you go well i was gonna say i think we i mean we're reasonably busy and i think office builders are um still building offices and i um have to say i'm quite surprised you know i think right you would think there would be a huge retrenchment in that market but i guess um their their gamble is that things will really go back to normal and that rent prices will will stay high uh don't know not sure I think time will tell well, i mean I think, in our own I, case for example we you know we would be forced to move office pretty soon because of our staff numbers, but because we're going to go back on a kind of um, uh, three days in, two days off pattern, actually the office fits us at a smaller size, which is great for our, you know, our economics. And I suppose that everyone else is thinking the same thing and that they were kind of moving towards that. Anyway exactly the same for us. Yeah, um, yeah we've seen so, that in our, in our own business. We were able to instantly pick up and work from home and we're doing that for 18 months before we started to go back, so. Yeah. So that's got to happen. I mean, you know, 20% less employees in the office from the demand side has to have an impact on the price of the rental of yeah. commercial property. I mean, how can it not? Right. Absolutely. I think, I think you know, we, we're already seeing, in one way, we're too early in terms of new offices to say what's happening. But what we are seeing a little bit of at the moment is, you know, people restructuring their offices to facilitate a better flexibility of working space, um, you know, reducing the number of permanent desks, maybe increasing the hot desking space, you know, restructuring kitchens and things and, you know, and redoing their MEP. But actually, these are people as well who maybe were needing to change the lease in their building anyway and move on and it's conveniently hit with a, with a COVID time. Um, and I think time will tell whether there is 
I mean, it's, 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 whether whether there is going to be this permanent change to flexible working, I suspect there will be people who hate it. They want to be in the office day in, day out, and they will continue to be in, and others who will do anything they can to not come back into the office, and they will do the same, and then there'll be everybody in the middle. Um, and depending on what your business is and how that operates, you may or may not get that flexible working to, to work in an effective manner. Right. And it can be so varied for every different company. It's really dependent on on what it is they do and whether they need to be in the office and how collaboration works. If they're able to do it virtually, as as we we and yourselves, I'm sure we're able to do that very easily virtually on videos. I mean, we shifted gears pretty quickly doing our podcast online instead of in the office. So um, on that note, uh, that was a really insightful conversation. Um, I'd like to wrap it up here because we're just reaching our time limit, but I want to thank you so much, Steve and Tom, for joining us. Where can our listeners get in touch? You have some amazing projects, really, really beautiful projects that we've been, we've had a pleasure of helping um, helping uh, dig out the innovation side on them, but where can our listeners get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more um, or connect with you? Uh, Webyates.com. Uh, there's an email address on there. Uh, so we'd be very happy to. And thank you very much for having us. Absolutely. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. That's the other thing you can do. That's uh, we're everywhere, <laughs> everywhere <laughs> and nowhere. <laughs> everywhere, <laughs> we're all over the place. So what we'll I'll do is I'll put um, a link in the description with uh, Twitter, the website, and um, we'll tag you on LinkedIn as well. I want to thank um, all of our listeners today for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Construction Big Breakfast. Uh, we do have a new episode every two weeks, so click that subscribe button, turn your notifications on so you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you have some time, we'd appreciate a five-star review. If you enjoyed this episode today, please share it, like it, and help spread awareness so that we can reach more listeners. And if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or looking to collaborate in other ways, visit us at www.invent.com with two ends for the Venn diagram. The link is in the description, or you can fill out a contact form so that one of our team can get in touch. Again, thank you so much, Steve, Tom, Daryl, for joining me today. And it was a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you. Want to learn more about how Invent can help your business maximize its bottom line? Head on over to www.invent.com and get in touch with our team today. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com, where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.